Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with leaders in the data science space. We hear their stories, their lessons learned, and how they got to where they are. With them, we discuss leadership, strategy, team building, and much, much more. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. And today we have a gem of an episode. I think we're speaking with Olivia Parrad. She's an extremely accomplished data science leader. In fact, she was writing books about data science before data science was a term. So she tells us about the books that she's written. And the first one was in data mining. So it's called the Data Mining Cookbook. She's also a certified holacracy practitioner. We speak a fair bit about that. She's been director of database marketing, director of pricing optimization, director of predictive modeling, vice president of analytical services. She's also had her own radio talk show about business insights. She's had her own business for a couple of decades. She's an advisor to companies and just has such an incredible and rich story to share with us today. I had a lot of fun speaking with her. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Here's the conversation with Olivia. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Olivia. Olivia, thank you so much for making the time. It is great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Felipe. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask the guest, how did you get started in the data space? What was it about the field that drew you in? Well, it's really kind of interesting because I will share later how I'm doing a lot more writing. And as a child, I was very ADD and I just enjoyed math. So I ended up studying in college and then decided after I had kids and I wanted to get back into the career, I went into graduate school in a math-based course and ended up majoring in statistics. When I got my degree, which was in 1991, there wasn't really a field called data analysis or I guess right now be data science. But back then, the first term that sort of came about was data mining. And so I ended up, the credit card banks were just starting to use data-driven models to find their best customers. And I came in and had studied categorical data analysis in my graduate work and really just started building models, not knowing that it was then going to birth this huge field. So it was really kind of fun. That's incredible. How did you pick statistics as the field for your graduate degree? That's a good question because when I was in undergrad, I had to take a statistics class and the professor was awful, I'll just say it. So I hated statistics. I loved math. So when I got to, I was living in Arizona, Tempe, Arizona, which is right outside of Phoenix and Arizona State University is there. And I went into the College of Business. I actually wanted to study social work, but a friend of mine said, no, it's really hard to find a job. And I thought, okay, you know, I had children and I wanted to be practical. So my husband was starting his own business. So I knew I should probably get something where I could make money. Right. So I, and I did like business because I had worked in business for a few years right out of college, out of credit company, but I knew I didn't want to study statistics. So they had three choices. They had computer science, statistics, and operations research. These were all within this decision and information system master's degree. So I thought, okay, I don't want to just be a pure computer scientist. That just sounded really boring, actually. Too linear, I think, was my thought. Now I might think differently. So I decided to do operations research because that was the last choice. And I really didn't even know what it was, but I got into it and it was fascinating. And you probably 
optimization models. But given that, I still had to start with a statistics class. And I had a really great professor and I really got to enjoy it. And he liked me. So he invited me to switch. And he said, if you change your major to statistics, I'll get you assistantships and you know, help you with your research, all that stuff. So that's why I changed. And I also was thinking at the time that it's probably a lot more practical than operations research. It's just something, you know, small businesses can basically use statistics where they probably couldn't really leverage operations research easily. Makes sense. How interesting. <laughs> and once you completed that degree, how did your career evolve since then? Well, I was actually in my last semester and my husband's company went, they went defunct. And my husband said to me, you know, I really want to start my own business. Can you see if you could get a job? And so I went into my professor and he said, oh yeah, there's this little credit card bank in San Francisco that's looking for people that understand how to build statistical models. So I went up there, interviewed, they hired me. And it was funny they gave me a data set that was perfectly clean that another analyst had done a tree model. Another analyst had built a tree model. So he'd already done all the sampling because back then you had to sample everything because the computer space was so small. And so I didn't even know what 90% of the work is, which is preparing the data. But I built this model using logistic regression. And even on top of a shade tree model, it saved the company because they were doing so much snail mail. This was before email really started. It saved the company $17 million a year in mail expense for the same amount of profit. So I was instantly a hero, as you can imagine. But the funny thing was, I had a, I don't even know if this is something people listening could even imagine, but I had a a desktop computer with a 500 megabyte hard drive. And I had SAS on the computer. When I was running SAS, I couldn't get into anything else. It was basically locked up and I had no server, nothing like that. It was just all right on this little PC. And so I had to sample, as I mentioned, and then I needed to prepare the variables. So I would spend the week Usually during the week, I would work on getting the variables in a linear form. And that was something I really mastered because I couldn't run the model until Friday night. I would start it and it would run for 27 hours. And this was just for the sample of 45,000 records. It wasn't, but it was just because computers were so slow. That same model could probably now would take three or four seconds. It's crazy. That's how I had to do it. And then after a year, we got a server and it had one gig on it. And we just thought, as the whole bank, we're never going to run out of space. It was funny, actually. But I still didn't have access to that to do modeling. I still had to do models on the PC. It wasn't until I went to the next position, which was, I transferred. I wanted to get back east with my family because I was commuting an hour and a half from San Francisco Bay Area. It was really tough. The bank I worked for was also, it was owned by a holding company that had an insurance company back east. So they transferred me back there. And then I got to work on mainframes, which was another interesting nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, everything was so different back then. And fun because we were pioneers. That's right. Those were the early days of what now has become data science. How did you find it going into financial services as your sort of first industry into your 
statistical career? Well, it's an interesting question because I didn't know how good I had it until I went into other industries. One of the things that is so great in financial services is just the volume of data is you know, huge. Although yeah. I will say with web data, I mean, that wasn't even available back then. What Even what a bank would have, it seems small compared to what you now can track on people's web traffic. But it was a very rich climate in which to model because the behavioral data was so strong. And I've always looked at different kinds of data, but I just think behavioral data is always the most powerful because people will even say things that they will do and they won't do it. But if they've done it before, it's a much more likely we'll do it again or, you know, someone like that, if that makes sense. Yes, exactly. That's so interesting. And could you give us an overview of your career since those early days? What are some of the main stages and problems that you worked on until now? Sure. So the first bank I went to was pretty small, but my role was fairly narrow. I did get uh, get promoted to head of acquisition, so I was doing broader stuff, but I really loved the analytics. When I moved back east, I was working in insurance and I really missed the credit data. So I eventually, after a couple of years, I went to work for another bank in the Philadelphia area, which was Advanta Bank. And they were the pioneers of balance transfer. And what they didn't do, which I think is something everybody should hear, is they didn't keep their data private. So the first bank I worked for, which was Providian Bank, okay, they aren't aren't around anymore. Their portfolio, I think, is now somewhere in Bank of America. But back then, they didn't share their data with anybody. They didn't share it with their Isaacs. They were really, really private. And I didn't know anything else when I was there. But when I got to Advanta Bank and I heard that they were sending their quarter file every quarter to Fair Isaac, and then Fair Isaac was using Advanta's data to build models to sell to their competitors. And I was horrified. I said, really? So I encourage companies and people working in these companies to keep your secrets if you want to maintain your competitive advantage. So yeah, after a few years, Advanta they lost their edge and eventually they sold to Fleet. This was interesting. I was at Advanta. And things were starting to go downhill. So I took an offer at Fleet Bank in Boston, but they had an office in Delaware, which was pretty close to where I live. And one of the things that was also really true then was that those of us that did this kind of analysis, we all knew each other. And we might have worked in one place together and then gone to different places, but everybody knew where everybody else was. So I would get calls, you know, do you want to come and work here? We need your skills. So that's kind of how I ended up at Fleet Bank. A friend of mine was there. He'd worked with me before. He said, yeah, you know, come on down. And what I loved about Fleet was they were mainly a regular bank, but they had this tiny little credit card division. So we got to do all kinds of things. And I really liked that. I liked the variety and I could get into campaign management and all kinds of other analyses. Then then Advanta, let's see, Fleet bought Advanta Bank, but Advanta got absorbed into Fleet credit card system. And that's when I started seeing how that human factor was so critical, which really informs my work today, which I'll share a little bit later. But I saw how 
when people weren't informed about what was happening, if there was a merger or an acquisition, the best people would leave. And everybody else was so stressed that it really hurt the business. And I didn't quite have the context back then, but I could see that this was really not good for profits. And it was hard on people as well. So I really got that very clearly. And after we bought Advanta, they wanted to put me in a role and I could see that I would just be stuck there just doing the same thing every day. So that's when I decided to just go off on my own. And so I just formed my own business and started doing project work, which was really fun because I could work for all different kinds of industries. And that is something that I think data science has this really rich advantage in that tools and the processes are pretty set. And there's new things coming in with machine learning and all of that, but they are really solving similar problems. The beauty is that you can do something in one industry and when you get into a different industry, you'll see a way, or I would see ways when I was, as I worked for Sprint and a couple other insurance companies and an energy company, and I would be able to apply what I was doing for the banking and other industries into this new industry. And retail was another example where they were pretty big, especially catalogs used RFM, you know, frequency, recency, and monetary value. But we could take, I could take what I had been doing with much more precise modeling and blow those models away. So that's a really rich aspect, I think, of data science is moving around in different industries. You can really see things and make a difference. That's right. You can learn so much by, by seeing the different industries and, and applying the data science knowledge across multiple uh, use cases and applications. It definitely gives you such a rich background and toolkit. Tell me, how did you find it starting your own business? going into consulting for yourself? It was challenging at first. What I decided, I was actually working for another company doing sales for about a year before I went on my own. And during that time, I would go to trade shows and be in the vendor hall trying to sell analytics, which is very hard to do because it's not tangible. And back then, a lot of people didn't really know what it was. And then somebody said, oh, well, I heard about somebody that wrote a book. And then they had all the business they wanted. So I thought, okay, maybe that's what I should do. So I looked around. Actually, SAS had asked me to write a book, but I didn't, I knew I didn't want to write a SAS book. I wanted to write more of a marketing book that would be applicable to several, any kind of software. So I contacted Wiley because I saw that they had published a couple of books on data mining. And I got through to an editor and he goes, yeah, we want to do it. I think I sent them a white paper so they knew I could write and they gave me a contract. And that's when I wrote Data Mining Cookbook. That book became a bestseller really quickly because there wasn't anything else out there. The other reason I wrote it was because back, if you remember, I was saying how I would do all this work to get variables to be linear. And I also figured out other ways to make the models better using weighting and all these things. And I was using a lot of creativity in my model building. And I remember I'd speak at these little conferences and people would push back like, oh, you can't do that. And I'd say, well, you know, once the data gets large enough, all the rules are gone and it makes my client money. So they don't really care if I'm breaking any rules, statistical rules. So that's one of the beauties of big data. Wow. 
Yeah, it's like there's this, you always hear statisticians caution us about multicollinearity, but that's actually more critical maybe in a medical model where you're trying to separate all the factors. You want to predict if somebody's going to have a heart attack or something like that. It's important. But the way I develop models, I use selection criteria that just mitigates any kind of multicollinearity anyway. So, and today, I mean, most people don't even know what's going into models. They just know that they work and they're the black box or quite messy if you try to look at them. <laughs> so that's Correct. And how, how do you feel about that approach that people are taking now? I like it. It also speaks to what I feel is the other really critical skill that people have to have today. And that is when we develop analysis, build models, nobody really knows if they work. So we have to think of ourselves as leaders and we have to make people feel comfortable with it. And when I develop a model, I will always do sort of an out of time sample to try to prove it works, say, on a different time period so that I'm comfortable that it will hold up. But being able to explain that and also sell people on the benefits, I always say, don't tell people what the R square is or any of the statistical stuff. Just say, if you use this, here's how much money it'll make or here's how much money it'll save you or, you know, talk about it into dollars and with dollars and cents and make people feel comfortable with it and lead them as though we're leaders here. We are thought leaders in this field, right? <laughs> We are. I really like that approach to help people, essentially non-technical business people, to see the value and the benefits of data science mm -hmm. by putting into the benefits, into the dollars. But also, I, I assume that you are quite careful about putting things in plain language or being able to explain things clearly to non-technical people. Do you have any tips that you use or any approaches that you could share on that relationship building or explaining data science to non-technical people? I think just perhaps listen to what their goals are and what their concerns are and try to speak and show the results in a way that alleviates those fears or addresses those concerns. And I think data visualization helps. Some graphs are usually easier for people to absorb, if, you know, gains chart or something that is very clear, say, if you're going to use a model or a machine learning model, statistical model, that they can see the, the gap between that and maybe not using it. And then what does that equate to in dollars? I do think dollars, or if you're cutting, say, a model might be cutting risk, then that can also translate into dollars, but it might be a little bit different conversation. That's really good. And tell me, what, what happened after you wrote your first book? I think it came out in 2000. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was 2001 when it was published. That's the publication year. But it might have been out the fall of 2000, yeah. Well, so it immediately put me on this international stage and it was fun. I was traveling and speaking and I really enjoyed it because it was so new for people. And then after a while, so there were these conferences like the DMA and the NCDM or National Center for Database Marketing. I don't know if they're even around anymore. The DMA was the Direct Marketing Association. I think it's combined with something else now. I was always on the short list. I could put in a proposal for analysis, doing a modeling talk, let's say, and it would get accepted. And I started at the, around that same time was when I was feeling the pain of the human skills being so needed. And so I started pitching topics to these conferences on the value of good communication 
for managing change or the importance of creativity and analytics, things like that. And they would often take all of them and maybe some couple of times they asked me to do half day workshops. So I put something together. It was really fun. But I wasn't able to really monetize it and they'd pay a little bit, but I couldn't really make a career out of it. So I did that for a few years and then I sort of just cut back and started doing more research into the human factor around this fast changing global economy. And that was the birth of the second book I wrote. I did a keynote actually at a SAS conference called Business Intelligence Success Factors and then head of publishing asked me to write a book. And by then they were partnering with Wiley, who had published my first book. So I wrote that book and that came out in 2009. And how was the process of writing a second book compared to the first one? Great question. The first book was a complete brain dump. I did not have one reference in the whole book. It was just what I did. The second book, the Business Intelligence Success Factors book, was a lot of research. It was very academic. And it was designed to take someone who has a critical thinking mind into an argument for treating people well. So I went into evolutionary biology and quantum physics and all the things that we can actually see that we're this big energy field. And as we work together, that affects us either negatively or positively. So that was really fun. And I remember a specific thing I loved where I I read this book by Kevin Kelly, who started Wired Magazine. I think the book's called Out Out of Control. And he had a chapter in there called Hive Mind, which was about this event that took place at a gaming conference where they had a, a whole audience working together to affect the paddles on the screen. I think they were playing ping pong on the screen where each person had a paddle and they could flip it to be either red or black, I think it was. And then these cameras would pick it up and adjust. And they became this field, kind of like we see birds and fish that swim in a pattern that you know they're connected somehow, even though they're not physically connected. And so we can do that as humans. And I thought that was so interesting. And I see that now. There's models for business, but holacracy is one of them, where you're invited to show up in service to this space that's created by the gathering of the people, that it's bigger than the sum of the parts. That's what quantum physics is saying. So I love that. And I also feel like everything linear is being automated. If you think about Mm -hmm. just the power of models now and how, what you can do. And really, if you get the data in properly and you know what's going on and you can interpret the results, You don't need to know that much in the middle anymore. So it sort of speaks to the earlier discussion about making sure people feel comfortable, but it's also then makes those other skills even more important because the actual development is being commoditized. And it also makes the data piece more important. So I remember surveys 15, 20 years ago where they would ask people developing models, how much time do you spend actually building your model? And how much time do you spend getting the data ready? And it's like 75 to 90 percent of the time is spent preparing the data. And I would say that's probably even a higher percentage now because modeling is so automated. Exactly. That's true. And you said that data helps in organizations that are decentralized, like using holacracy. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? How does data assist in that type of management style? Well, I wasn't necessarily saying that data was assisting. It's more of the concept of seeing a group that shows up to work together. So holacracy is a 
a model for do, doing business. And I think Zappos is using it now. Yeah, where people take on a role. So it's more of a model and a style of meetings and things that's very agile. And in that context, I would say data being fed back as to the efficiencies of any of these processes could be useful for you know improving that the way holacracy works. But the point about holacracy is that it invites people to show up in service to a greater cause than just themselves, which I think is what we all should be doing more of these days. Yeah, completely agree. And that's in Zappos or the about Zappos. That's the first time I heard about holacracy in the sense that they're having the decentralized management where people fluid with their roles and that they choose to work wherever they feel that they can add the most value. And I think they had a transition period where the CEO said, if you don't want to work like this, this way that we have coming up, we will pay you to leave and and, mm-hmm. and no feelings hurt, essentially. But I think I first heard about that when I I think that Zappos did the transition in maybe 2014 or something around there. I probably heard about it in 2015. Your book is from 2009 yeah. and you have a chapter on holacracy. How, <laughs> how did you, how did you, how how did did you come across it so early on? Wow. I have to remember because I was in the Philadelphia area and Brian Robertson, the developer of it, lives there. I guess I was at some kind of workshop and it wasn't data based. It was more I love personal growth stuff. And I think someone mentioned it and it just intrigued me. And so I sought it out and met Brian. I went to a little gathering at his house, probably in around 2008. And decided I wanted to get certified. So I'm actually certified in Holacracy. I think I was the 30th person to get certification. I haven't used it a lot. So if I really wanted to start using it, and I may do this, I would probably need to go get a refresher. But I was so impressed with the efficiency. It really allows one to manage a meeting and deal with things that are often difficult, like side conversations, things like that, in a very respectful but efficient way. And then, of course, like you were saying, that people show up, they might have a few of their own accountabilities and what role are they playing today? And Brian would often show up as CEO, but he'd have a bunch of other roles as well. And I was on the team for a little bit, helping them get get their marketing out as well. And I'm just so happy with how well they're doing. So. I think it's a nice model for where I think business is going to go in the future. Why do you say that? That it's a good model for where business is going to go into the future? That's a great question. I hadn't even thought about it. So because with the speed of change, companies have to be much more agile. And what Holacracy allows is knowledge and wisdom to come from everyone. So think about 75 years ago, maybe farther back, the companies could be very top down. The CEO would make every decision, everybody that worked under him, if it was manufacturing, chances are he could go and take over any job in the company and do it. Today, we have all these different pressures. So first of all, everybody needs to know how to use a computer. And I would argue almost everybody in every company is on a computer at one point or another during the day. So everybody's a little more skilled, which makes them more valuable and less replaceable. But the other thing is with markets being global and just changing so quickly, companies need to be able to adapt much more quickly. It's not command and control anymore. It's sense and respond. And the way you can see that the way this worked was, well, one example I think people can relate to is after World War II, Deming was one of the 
scientists that really understood this kind of quantum system. And he wanted to come to the U.S. and help redo, kind of revitalize manufacturing. And the U.S. didn't want him. So he went to Japan and helped with the car companies. And what he did was he set up all these small teams where people could make decisions really quickly and improve things without having to go all the way up to the top and back down. And that's why their cars were so good. For a while, they were just outperforming everything in the U.S., right? So the U.S. has taken on more of that, but the companies in the future are going to have to be so adaptable and be able to turn on a dime. And it it really speaks to why smaller companies can grow and be so successful quickly, where a lot of the bigger, more legacy-based companies have such a hard time. I've talked to people in the insurance industry, I won't name names, but there's a few insurance companies that just cannot get out of their own way. And they're very siloed. And it's just really hard to be agile and competitive when you're siloed, when you have internal competition. It's a really redesign of the whole company. So the, what I love about Holacracy is that it, it's very agile and it can make adjustments quickly to how the company operates to really keep it current for whatever is the latest competitive threat to any, any business. That's exactly right. And what do you think about the balance? Or I guess, is there a need for balance between complete autonomy from everyone in their own work and the command and control style where the strategy or the priorities are being centrally worked on and maybe centrally dictated? Do you see that there's a need for balance? Or do you think that the more autonomous models like Holacracy is what's needed into the future? I really do think it's a balance. And what Holacracy does is it creates teams. So there is a place for a decision to be made just individually, you know, with autonomy, but it's a very specific situation. And then you are held accountable for it and you have to have reasons that make sense. And, you know, you oh, it's okay to make a mistake, but that's something you want to be smart about. And then the balance, I think, comes from the fact that people can create teams to get something done. They don't have to go to the top. Let's just say a company is in some industry, like a technology industry, and they see a threat coming from a competitor, or maybe there's a new type of product. They could just create a quickly create a team, find people that have the time and interest and talents to address that threat, come together, create a solution. Maybe it gets handed off eventually to a, a broader production team, but those kinds of things have to be balanced. So I don't think it's even predominantly autonomous. I think it's more of this self-organizing, quick-changing, agile teams that deliver a result and then maybe revise themselves or disband and move on to something else. Correct. Instead of having a fixed role and fixed title where you could have sort of varying demands on your work, it's more flexible teams around projects and, and outcomes. That makes sense. That's really good. And I'm so curious, I have to ask about the transition between your two books. Your first book being the data mining cookbook. I love how it was very clear, very well structured and went through all the stages required in data mining in order with great, very clear explanations and excellent applications, including towards the end, uh, you bring in applications for the web. And before that, you look at churn, risk, making sure that your models are accurate and valid. So it was a technical book. And then on your second book, you cover communication, collaboration, innovation, adaptability, leadership, 
So my question is, how was that transition for you between the first book and the second book? And before you did that keynote at the SaaS conference about the success factors for business intelligence, what led you to to focus on these topics that then you covered in your keynote and book? So I mentioned earlier how I was seeing this damage to companies when people were in fear, right, with all these acquisitions and mergers. I just saw how people suffered and I knew how I suffered and I was in fear sometimes. So I just felt like that spoke to me. I also mentioned earlier that I wanted to go into social work. So I always had this fascination with human psychology. I continued to study that on my own and I've been into personal growth and all of that all my life. And it was funny when I first got into the corporate setting in San Francisco, that very first credit card bank, I loved the work, but the culture was very fear-based. And I really felt almost traumatized. Like I didn't feel safe to share who I was. And what I did then was I sort of separated that side of myself. So I had these two worlds that I felt like I lived in. And then right before I started, right, well, I started doing the talks at conferences on these human skills. And then when SAS invited me to do a keynote, I said, I'd love to put all these together and just do an overview. And I said, great. And then I got invited to write the book. It was like, I started seeing how my two worlds came together and how the data and the technology was driving this rapid change that was creating the need for the human skills. And the more things get automated, the more the human factor matters. So I said, wow, I can now start really writing about stuff that I enjoy and that's much more interesting (laughs) to me, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. And so that was the birth of that book. And I really loved doing the research and the writing. And I I kept it very academic. So then that's kind of how that came together. That's fantastic. And why do you say that as more things are get automated, the need for human factors is more prominent? It takes away time from being just in the analytics, for one thing. And then it's also making things so much more complicated that trust really needs to be built. You know, to have good, deep trust, you need to be able to communicate. You need to care about people. There's a lot of research on compassion or if you care for people, you're mirror neurons actually sync up in your brains. So all these things become more important as our as the work we do gets more sort of cryptic and siloed or not not necessarily siloed but harder to understand maybe it's it is kept to a few people who have the skills to do data science. So in that way it's siloed, but it's also more and more driving everything in the business. Companies that are leveraging analytics in many, many areas. Now people are even using it in human resources. This is really changing the nature of business. And with all of this power being put into these pockets of modeling and data-driven actions, it really speaks to people being able to communicate and trust and understand what's going on. And a lot of times, I remember years ago, I would listen to people in marketing and IT try to talk to each other and they spoke completely different languages and they didn't have the same goals either. And that still goes on in a lot of companies that I've noticed, but they have to be brought together. And this is where companies that can coordinate kind of like holacracy allows for a common goal for the company. So everybody can buy in and then do their part. Is really speaks to that need for the human skills 
And what are some ways that you recommend or that you have seen to bring the two worlds together? If we think about, say, marketing and IT or marketing and data science, how can we get people speaking the same language and come together? Well, that's sort of my work now. And just to fill in a little bit, I did the consulting from, say, 2001, well, it's by 2003, I guess I went on my own, and then wrote the book in 2009. decided to kind of sink back in and just do research, more research and work for, I just got a nice contracting job with a big client so that I could focus on my writing as well. And I knew that something more heart-based was what I wanted to write next, but I did have this fear. Like if I come out with something really soft, people would discount me, you know, as some <laughs> flake or whatever. So what happened Especially is- comedy. Background. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it was around 2013, maybe. SAS reached out to me and said, Would you write a book around data enterprise guide, enterprise minor? And I knew I didn't want to write it, but I knew that if I wrote it, <laughs> it would make me more relevant. My credentials would be updated, let's say. So I wrote that book, but one thing that I insisted on was having a section at the end of each chapter called Notes from the Field, where I talked about the importance of leadership and the human skills and all these things to look out for and to be knowledgeable. Well, that book ended up winning Best of Show at the Carolina Technical Book Competition. And they said it was because wow. I, I anticipated the needs of the readers. And I have to believe it's for, because of that part of the book. So that really validated to me, too, that there was a yearning out there. And, you know, I'm this kind of personal growth, spiritual seeker. And I was getting in my meditations that there is a yearning. It's like what I was going through 25 years ago or whatever, early 90s, this want wanting to connect with people and wanting to have more of the human factor being nourished in the organization. I didn't know back then that it would actually help the company, but I do think it does. So I spent seven years working on an outline for what I just published last fall, which is called Love at Work. And it's taking compassion and caring, which is one of the definitions of love in Wikipedia, and showing, and there's all this great data on companies that use compassion and caring and how it helps profits. So I approach it from the data science aspect. There's many books out there, Conscious Capitalism, you know, all these great things that speak to the choir. I'm trying to reach CEOs that may just turn their back on the concept of being loving. But I'm saying, well, if you do this, if you can hold your nose and just treat people better, you will make more money. And then my hope is that it'll help them perhaps see the value in it and maybe help their own lives if there's a chance of that. So that's kind of where I am now. So I published Love at Work and then I just published the workbook couple weeks ago called The Love at Work Method. And in that book, it's much different. It's not as academic. The first chapter is a bit academic, but then I go into research of evolutionary models and how really people are changing and wanting more of this. Just in general, I see millennials and younger people wanting more art in their work, I think. And then I go into my personal story a bit of what I've shared today and how that all informed what I'm doing and how I feel like all of us want to show up and be seen and heard for who we are, not just what we do, and connect with people deeply and how that helps the company. And do you find that that's a harder sell than the outcomes organization like Holacracy? 
do you find that essentially being nice to employees, allowing people to or encouraging people to bring their whole self at work and be accepted for that? Is that a, a more difficult sell as a message out there for CEOs and leaders today? I think it's a little bit challenging as a, to sell because it's a different conversation than people are used to. But yes. what I have found, and on my website, I have an invitation, which kind of speaks to this yearning to be seen and heard and all this stuff. When people read that, that it resonates a lot. And I think we met through a little survey I did on LinkedIn, where I was asking people to comment on whether they felt a course on deep connection in the workplace would be valuable or how to manage change or what does the new leadership look like. And people I find are interested and I get a lot of great responses. So I don't have anything that I can show statistically, but I am going to start launching these courses in a couple of weeks. And at that point, I'll get a better idea and be able to answer that more succinctly. It's great work. And thank you. Thank you for noticing, for putting it together, for getting it out there, because there's definitely what we need out there in the world today, definitely in the, in the business world. And in your book, how did you make the, the case for love at work? There's a lot of research out there that shows how companies that do sort of specific things for their employees and how it boosts profits. So there was a book called Firms of Endearment that has some great research in it. I encourage people to read that. And a few other books. There was also, I did a radio show on Voice America for a year and a half called Quantum Business Insights, where I interviewed people who were doing interesting things with new business models. And I had a fellow on who talked about Campbell's Soup and how their Mm -hmm. stock was just their stock was crashing and so they hired some consultant to come in and he took about six months and he did all this research and he did an employee satisfaction survey and he did that in the beginning and i think the actively engaged number was about 13 percent, which is really bad so i think somewhat engaged was 40 or 45 percent. so it was really bad most of them were not engaged and after all the research he did he came back with a simple set of suggestions that each manager would speak to each of their direct reports at least once a day and just say to them, how are you doing? Here's what's going on with the business or with me or, you know, the team or whatever. And then is there anything you need to get your job done? That's it. And within nine months, the satisfaction rate went up into the mid 80s and their stock started to reverse and there was no other expense related to it. It was just such proof to me that at a certain point, people don't want more money. They want to feel good. You know, they want to be appreciated, right? So it's so simple and yet it's quite powerful. That's one of the things I love about it, that it is simple and so powerful. And I think that what is sometimes seen as polite dealings or taking care of people sort of outside of work, that that doesn't always translate into the way that businesses are built and organizations are run. So having this type of message is, I think, fantastic. Yes, I'm so happy and so grateful and so excited that you're doing this, that this is your mission. No, thank you. And I will also say that the research shows that people who have these better experiences at work go home happier and it actually improves family life as well and, you know, community and maybe the world at large. So interesting. So interesting. And (laughs) where would you like to see this going? 
I had one person that reviewed my book that said this should be a course in every MBA program. I would love to see this kind of thing taught. And I think a lot of people are wounded. They bring their wounds in, especially as a leader. You know, it doesn't serve them well. And we could get much more out of people if they were valued and encouraged to take risks. So I want to have courses available online. And I also think courses like this taught perhaps different in different cities could really benefit companies, perhaps organizations, companies could bring courses like this into their actual location and do whole groups of people training around deep communication and trust and all of that stuff. Wow. And what drives you to be doing not only this work, but all the work that you've done through your career? What is the engine that moves you? Because I love that one of the things that you said before was that you got a contracting role with a large firm so you could focus on your writing. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, what? People, people do only one of those things at a time. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny because the fellow that recruited me had read my book, David my cookbook, and he said, you know, I'd love you to join my team. But by then, I was very well known. And he said, probably much more than I am now. He said, well, why wouldn't you just take this career and go far with it? And I said, you know, I just know it's not my work. I love doing it, but it's not what I came here to do. And I really, I'm going to get into my spiritual side of it. I really feel like we are born with a purpose. And that's what drives me. I feel like I'm going to be accountable for getting this out there, you know, before I make my transition. And I love it. And I know it can have impact. And I feel like my earlier career, which was really fun, and I learned a lot was to create the credibility that I need to actually speak in these terms today to say, I know the way your mind works and what you're struggling with. And I'm here to say this is going to help. So that's kind of what drives me is I feel like I'm showing up in service to the greater good. And whether it gets any recognition in my lifetime is not important. It's just my by evolutionary urge to create this knowledge and get it out there. That is a big call. So it it obviously requires a lot of self-awareness and a little self-introspection. And I think that's what you were saying about the spiritual side coming out in those decisions or, or as you were explaining to us, your decision making of not making a career in the typical sense, but chasing and forging your own path. So how, how do you describe or how do you describe your mission and, or your calling uh, today? Well, so before we do that, let me just say that back in the 90s, I was doing, I was meditating and I was really under a lot of stress in the corporate world. And I just was asking like, why am I stuck here? I just hate the culture. And I got this message. This is where you need to be to learn the skills, do your real work. And it was another 12 years before I figured out what my real work (laughs) is. Um, And so I'm sorry, what was your question again? And how how did you have the patience during those 12 years to continue working extremely hard, uh, knowing that your real work would come after that? What kept you going through those times? (laughs) That's a great question. I think I was, so my husband's health started to fail and I was the main breadwinner. So I had uh, three children. I had to keep making money for that. And I, as much as maybe I could have been somebody give me a million dollars, I could have had an easier life, but I know that that pushing of myself was where my growth came. And so I really 
now can look back and see that it all made sense and that I wouldn't trade where I am now for anything, even though I've had lots of challenges. I feel like we all have those and if we can learn from them, they're not failures. So that's what kind of inspires me. I'm happy that you used the, the word failure there. And, and in your case, what was something that at the time might have looked like a failure, so an apparent failure at the time that then led you to greater success down the road? Once early in my career, I got promoted way over my head for my basically my experience level. I was older when I got into the world, corporate world. So I think that was one of the reasons I got promoted. And then the company had no support. I went to the HR and asked for some training around what I needed to do. And they just said, no, you know, you're on your own. <laughs> so what I got from that was I had some fear of being promoted. And when I went to my next job, which was much more data focused completely, then they wanted to promote me after a year. I said, no, I didn't want it. It was really funny. This is, you know, back in the early mid-90s. So then my manager said to me, well, you don't have a choice. <laughs> and he <laughs> basically said, you're going to head up this team of analysts. And it really was great because I knew what they were doing. And I was much more knowledgeable about the whole thing where the earlier promotion I was managing all kinds of stuff that I'd never touched before. And I was also overwhelmed with what was going on in my personal life as well. I can forgive myself for the first one, but first maybe failure, but I also saw companies that don't support people and when they need it are losing talent. So I might've done fine if I could have gotten a little support, which speaks to this need to nurture the human in the business, not just what they do, but who they are. So it all kind of made sense later. Incredible. And how would you describe your calling or your mission now? I want to use data and logic to prove that nurturing and supporting human skills, nurturing skills, competencies in business is good for business, good for people, good for the planet. Fantastic. Is what we need. It's and so good to hear you say that because that just confirms it even more. So thank you. One hundred percent. That is exactly what is needed. And and you know, in in my career, I've definitely felt that the duality that you spoke about before—that you're one person outside of work, and at work you have to pretend to be somebody else—and I think people are, are tired of that. I know that I definitely got tired of that, and I wanted to find ways to break free from it. So the longer you go back in time, then the more extreme those measures had to be in order for you to break free from it. But with work like yours, it means that those situations are improving. So then, But then hearing that you're bringing in the evidence behind it that to say, if we are nice, it actually leads to better businesses and better business results and outcomes. That is something that's going to get the interest of the people that need, that can make the change. So that's, mm -hmm. that's why I'm so about so happy and so excited about your work. Have you seen places, companies that are doing it well at the moment? And you don't necessarily need to name any names, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the types of things that, that they might be doing well and things that, that you would like to see more of in companies? 
Sure. I'll do this. And I, I was just thinking about this anyway. I'll put in a plug for my friend, Steve Farber. So somebody that heard Steve Farber speak, a mutual friend, texted me one day. He says, you have to check this guy out. So I went on to his website and he teaches this thing called Extreme Leadership. And he is just coming out with a book. It's in pre-order right now called Love is Damn Good Business. So when I heard that, I just thought I have to go to this conference and meet him and everybody else. And so I did. I went down in February and it was amazing. And they had a bunch of speakers talking about how they had used Steve's process. It's called LEAP. It's called Love, Energy, Accountability, and Proof. And he goes into corporations and uses this process, the first of which is love. So, you know, it's just perfect for me. And so I'm actually going to certify with him in October. So at this conference, a couple companies spoke of using it. And I don't remember the smaller ones, but one that was significant is American Greetings, which is a big card company, right? They do greeting cards. And the CEO was there talking about using love and course, the other aspects of being accountable and things to change the culture. And there were many people there from American Greetings and they, a lot of them spoke anecdotally or on stage about how everybody loved coming to work every day and just that it unleashed this creativity, which in that kind of industry was huge. So they launched a bunch of new greeting card lines. So they're doing it and they're making it profitable. And it's very exciting to me. And that's in an industry that's seen as being in, in trouble in terms of greeting cards is, is not is not something that you think of when you think of areas that sales are on the rise. Yeah, the first thing to the that customer internet, mind is, <laughs> you know, you can do them online now, yeah. It's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, so the the fact that they are doing well is fantastic. That is outstanding. And can you tell me a little bit more about the courses that you have coming up? Sure. So the first one I'm gonna launch is called Deep Connection in the Workplace, How to Create Deep Connection in the Workplace. And I'm finishing up a, an ebook that I'm going to use to just invite people to think about it. And that'll probably go out next week. And so this course will have four modules and it just will help people understand the importance of connection and why it matters at work and then really how to do it in the workplace and how to be safe and know how to transfer difficult situations where you know that you can create connection and maybe where it's good to not attempt to create connection, things like that. Great. And where can people find you online and find more about your upcoming courses and work? So my website is www.oliviaprharvardpr.com. I have the courses there in general, but I'll be putting more up in the next week, probably. And I may even move to a different platform. But if they go there, it'll eventually get them to the location for the courses. And please sign up for my email list to get up-to-date offerings and know what's going on. That's incredible. And I'll include the, the links on the show notes. And Thank you. Olivia, this has been such a pleasure. This has been truly outstanding. Uh, before we go, I just have one last question for you. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask you about a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with. What is something that you would like to say to them about that they can think about in their career or their decision making into the future? Oh, good. So one of the things I didn't mention, although it's kind of there, is the importance of your intuition. And I think when we 
get in touch with our deepest self, which may be what we're drawn to be more human at work is really to tap into that, to think about how important intuition is and how you can actually use it in analytics. And I've done this and I will have a section in my course on intuition. So that's just something I would encourage people to look into more. If they, and just to say a lot of top level CEOs may not speak of being intuitive or using intuition, but they all talk about how they have a gut feeling and it's the same thing. If you have a gut feel about something, learn to go with it and uh, practice tuning in and testing it because it's a very powerful place and it has knowledge that our left brain can't quite grasp. So that together with the critical thinking brain, it's just so powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and insights and wisdom. Thank you for the work that you're doing. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. You're helping. I can see by the questions you ask and your interest that you care about this stuff as well. So thank you for your work. And it's been my pleasure to be all your guests today. Amazing. Thank you so much, Olivia. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.